City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, the acres and acres of tar and cement I've just ridden over them, in fact, and um, I just want to point out in terms of the efficiency of public transport, which is better than cars, I suppose, but a tram and I got across Queen's Parade at the top end of Smith Street together, and it was still hadn't made Gertrude Street, or still hadn't made um, Johnson Street by the time I got here, So, uh, and there wasn't much traffic around, so it just goes to show that uh, with little traffic, trams can still get held up by cars, unfortunately. I think it's quite amusing. I'm sitting in for Corey, who uh, is unable to get in this morning. Maybe she's uh, been uh, caught in a tram stranglehold. Who knows? No, no, she's actually... She rang me at 7am. She wasn't feeling well. She was... She's missed missed two weeks ago as well. She's had a bit of a thing floating around and obviously recurred. Got a lurgy. So Annie McLaughlin's pressing the buttons at the moment. But I was going to say, my observation about trams, because they're my friends, Mm -hmm. is that the... uh, Drivers these days are really in love with their bells. Bing, bang, bang, bang. I, I find it actually noise pollution myself. But yes, yes, yes. Drives me crazy. Yes, I, I live alongside a railway line, and I, I must admit people talk about you know noise and things, but I, you don't notice it after a while. But if you're riding along the bike path or something, then trains going past regularly bip their horns. Uh, those loud screeches. Oh, they really thing. give you a fright. Yeah. Sometimes they do, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, particularly if it just goes past and then goes bang. And you're <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's right. I'm in the real world. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, we'll talk about oh, today. That's I'm sorry. That's not what we're here No, that's what's what we're here for, although perhaps it is. Um, did I mention I'm Kevin Healy? I probably didn't, but it doesn't matter. Um, and Annie McLaughlin, I said, is over there. Today, it's, uh, we, said, we said last week we're going to have a special, and it's one that uh, Corey actually came up with this idea, and it's a pity she isn't here to discuss it, but uh, the, just to look at the question of how, how cities are going to have to adjust to or what's going to happen to stop them having to adjust to climate change and what the impact of climate change might be on cities. And uh, one of our irregular regulars or regular irregulars, Dr. Paddy Moriarty, always professor these days. Moriarty, fantastic. Yes, Paddy Moriarty. He's Professor Moriarty now, by the way. Which is, uh, which he, 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 is he going to die from from the top of a, a massive... Uh... Well, he, he does see the joke himself, but um, he, um, he has recently written a paper uh, on uh, this very subject and climate change, and he's He's looked at several scenarios that will may or may not happen. Very yes. interesting so topic. We'll be talking to Paddy from about 20 past or so for the remainder of the program. And um, up till then, I'll just rave on about a few things. I'm going to pour myself There's a cup a really of tea, There's a really big thing going on. Say something, Annie, because yeah. I can pour tea and we'll put it uh, up. Really the right big program. things going oh. on. The Spaghetti Junction. Have you talked about the Spaghetti Junction? The Spaghetti Junction. Do you know? That's what the Sun Herald's calling it. The Spaghetti oh, this, this, Junction. Oh, that one out there. Yeah, that's. I'm going to might raise that with Paddy actually. But it's, it's it, what I, what I find fascinating about that is that Transurban, which um, our mate, I know someone through the week on 3CR said they should get back to just doing roads. Well, in fact, they're a different company now because the Bongiorno Nettis family broke up a few years ago, split them in two, and Transfield, which is under attack at the moment for. 
Nauru and Manus. Um, in fact, there's now a separate column. There probably is a, because of the it's family actually, connection. Uh, d- d- do you know about Transfield? The well, people the who... The case sold out. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. also that uh, they've now changed their name. That's right. To because of, the people yes. who own Transfield's name object uh, yeah, that's to right. being object, that's right. yes, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? connected that was the, to child abuse. The Bongiorno Nettis family, yeah. Well, they're still involved with Transurban. Um, but... Um, what I find fascinating is there's now this thing called unsolicited um, unsolicited uh, proposals or whatever they're called. The 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 Packer the Packer uh, Casino, the massive development at Barangaroo in Sydney, is a is an unsolicited tender. That's what they call unsolicited tender by Packer to the government, which accepted it, and it's going on the the land that was set aside for public open space in that development. And since then, he keeps increasing it. So there's more and more car spaces, etc., in what was supposed to be a public transport enclave, etc. Really. Um, and so, so is that western suburb one is similar. Transurban simply came to the government with the proposal. No, no tenders called, no proposal called, and they're running it. And I, I find it fascinating that apart from what's come out in the last few days, and there's some, I think there's some ambiguity about to what degree it's going to be. You know what the Herald Sun's raving on about is going to happen anyway. But that's another question. Uh, so are but, you implying that uh, the? Uh, Business com- the corporate business community has now come out from behind the curtain of government Indeed. to just blow us all away. Well, this program began because of, we formed a group called the People's Committee for Melbourne because the Committee of Melbourne had started up and the, the corporate cowboys were running planning in this town and probably still do. Um, and this is the same thing. Trans, Transurban has gone to the government with a proposal which the government's accepted. And what I found this week was that in, in apropos of what the Sun's talking about, Transfield said we will hold public consultations. Not the government, not the government holding How public consultations. Transfield, them, Transurban themselves. So they're running the whole show. Uh, and of course, at the other end, and, and who's making the decision at the end? Because they've already oh well, they'll they'll give something to the minister to sign, I suppose. But um, rubber Whoa, stamp, boom boom, Ru- that rubber stamp. Yep, and um, <laughs> it's all it's all it's wonderful. Uh, and of course, in the end, what they get out of it is uh, part. Well, governments pay; they pay part of it, but in return, they get an extension of the um, City Link uh, contract. So they. They, they'll make billions at the other end because their contract to run it will it will go further than it was supposed to in the first place. So uh, the end result is that it, they're going to make billions out of a proposal, uh, and and there's some there's some justification for what's going to happen there. But there, there's more justification for all that freight that's going through that area, or not not all of it, but a lot of it being put onto rail, which the government isn't doing. If you put more freight onto rail, then there wouldn't be such a need for truck corridors, because it's all about freight. That's what it's all about. And not, and not to mention that uh, are we happy that the government's not actually earning its crust? I'm, I'm a bit tired of um, corporations deciding how everything should be. Yes, and then deciding they should, they should pay less to audit as well. Yeah. <laughs> bit let's, less tax. Let's, uh, this, is, this is pertinent. Oh, no. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no-comment interview. A no-comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say... No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes, except your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment? Yes, you say... No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes. Say no, no comment. comment. If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment.
Fitzroy Legal Service proudly supporting 3CR. Okay, we're back on City Limits with Kevin Healy and Annie McLaughlin over there. Annie, on, on the industrial front, I found it for more than industrial front, on the environment and industrial front, I guess. Um, recently, we've had the government, and I noticed that the um, the government has said it will, this new government, so called as they're calling it, the old are government. Are you calling, the old are you talking about the, 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 yeah, the, the federal the, the government? Fed, the federal government. This federal government mm-hmm. has said it will continue to continue with its proposal to take away the right of environmentalists to sue resource oh, companies. There's um, absolutely no difference between this particular no, government. No, no, in fact, right. in fact, people should be very scared, very afraid. Exactly. Because they're better dresses and they're a younger crew and they've obviously got the entire mainstream media behind them. They've even been taking pictures of them kissing babies almost. Travelling in trams in Melbourne. And I mean, even, even down to this business about uh, taking photographs on the, uh, the second day or the day that, uh, of all the women with children and stuff. Do you you realise there's only five women in a cabinet of 21? We made that point on the week that was, that it's gone, you know, uh, Turnbull acknowledges it's not 5% of Australians are women, but 20%. Uh, <laughs> There's actually more women in this country than there are men. Well, anyway, that's bizarre, what he... Bizarre, bizarre, bizarre. We made that point. And, we've, right. got, and we've got a, a minister for women who doesn't believe in feminism. That's right. And I, I, yeah, um, I, I, uh, I spent three days believing a little baby had been sworn into cabinet, but someone told me... That's no, right. Was, <laughs> <laughs> was it the same baby? But, but apparently not. And was that, was that child of you? That's right. Well, pity it wasn't because it would have done a better job. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's, that's that. But uh, no, well, they, they're taking steps because of this terrible group, the environmentalists, who actually took a Dani to court up in the Carmichael. And one. And one. That's the worst part. Whoa. I mean, they ignore that point. They say, how dare they go to court and use the law this way? But they actually won, <laughs> which they seem to ignore the fact that the law worked for them. Well, um, also that the law can actually be representing all stratus of society instead of their stratus of society. Well, very occasionally it is capitalist law ultimately well, that works exactly against right. us, but nonetheless, um, but they did win on this one. But the government coming to the defence of Adani saying no one can, can be allowed to sue companies like Adani, yet just last mm. week, um, Adani, Indian energy giant Adani's battle to build the 16.5 billion Carmichael mine has struck another hurdle with a protracted legal battle with resources company Glencore over the operation of Abbott Point coal terminal because Glencore are putting restrictions on their use of the terminal and so Adani's taking them to court so Adani has every right to go to court to sue other someone. people yeah so other people who are getting it I mean and, and you realize of course that this uh, Carmichael mine is like an abd- appendectomy of in the country like <laughs> make a bowel removal yeah it's it's yeah. not a little thing Oh no! It's uh, and and in fact the Queensland government. Speaking of, it's good to see government supporting public transport, although this is private transport. Um, the government, Queensland government, says it will throw the money in to build the rail line from the mine to the port at Abbott Oh, point. good, good yeah, for them! Yeah, yeah, that's bloody terrific. Bloody hell! That, that's yeah. a Labor government, so they're on that side. That's that's right, they're terrific. Yeah, good guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, a bloke, you might enjoy. I think, Annie, knowing how much you enjoy these sort of people, there's a bloke we should remember his name, Robert Milner. No, yeah, Robert Milner. No, I don't. No, well, Robert, no, I didn't hurt him either, but he's a heavyweight businessman, according to this. Um, he He's actually the head of Washington 8 Soul Patents and a big 
you know, they've sort of been all sorts of things. Uh, they, including brickworks and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, he says payroll tax should be axed and the GST increased. Well, that's fair enough because business knows that's good for us. As he blamed bureaucratic state approval processes for hurting job creation and inflating house prices. Now, this, bloke's, crap. this bloke's wonderful. We need a higher GST and we need corporate tax rates to come down. Payroll tax is a tax that is really affecting employment growth and we've got this huge cost base that we've inherited. Now, the bit I think you'll really like, um, Milner, whose family wealth was estimated at $936 million by BRW last year, also took aim at Australia's high wages and penalty rates. He said Australia is the second most expensive country to manufacture in the world, an average cost of about 42 an hour compared with 28 in New Zealand, 25 in the US. We've lost our car industry and a lot of other manufacturing industries. Anyone that employs people is feeling the pinch. Well, they're down to 936 million. They're obviously feeling the pinch pretty badly, this lot. Um, this is a fantastic um, yeah. piece of argument. argument. Any, anyone that employs people is feeling the pinch. And if you open on weekends, you've got to pay penalty rates. 38, and he, on he goes and that fine. So, um, see, see, Aristotle would say that uh, he is just uh, using rhetorical methodology to sway people not having anything, no legs to stand on because he goes from one argument to another. He wants payroll tax to disappear, right? Yes, so now, he can employ people, but then yeah. they cost too much. No, 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 but he yeah. probably doesn't even have any interests in any of the things that he's talking about. The thing about manufacturing is a long haul of destruction in Australia that is has got nothing to do with payroll tax. Payroll tax has had nothing to do with the destruction of the these manufacturing industries. Mm. The 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 whole uh, idea of having no uh, method of uh, taxing. Uh, employers, etc., so that you can actually maintain infrastructure and government services. What a load of crap! It's like the, it's like the land tax. Get rid of the land tax because it means the first home buyers can't own a house. When in actual fact, the only tax that the government can actually reap from these things from developers and all these investment property people, is the land tax. Spot on. Spot on. Unbelievable. Well, well you'll be pleased to know that Sol Pats, as they call them, because that's the, you know, the the family, the business name. Poor uh, Diddums. Uh, yeah, sort of little nickname for it. Strugglers. Owns, owns controlling and minority stakes in a range of businesses in sectors including the resources industry, telecommunications, agriculture, property and building products. And, yeah, but not, and, not, not retail, manufacturing or hospitality, oh, no, which no, is where no. the penalties are being That's cut. Right. So the man can go put his head in a toilet. But he's caring for others. This shows he cares for everybody. And was um, this in the financial review? Yeah, it was indeed. Oh. Mil- Milner, now you'll be pleased to know that other that other fine example of the human race, uh, Inox, Innes Willox from the Australian <laughs> Industry Group. Oh yeah, who uh, used to yeah. be who used to be Alexander Downer's uh, um, uh, chief of staff. Right. People Alexander, remember, right. remember. Alexander, yeah. Well, he's backed him up. He says the reality is that Australia, he did. Australia needs a workplace relations system that is consistent with the needs of 21st century workplaces. So this guy, this uh, Will, Willox, Innes Willock whatever his name is, is so fascinating. He started me off with looking at all these different places that are supposed to be separate and independent from this particular federal government. When in that you start looking and you discover they've all been employed at some point or other by yeah. one of their ministers. That's right. Well, you've got... 
You've now got the the financial area. You've got Morrison, who's a great, who's a protege of and loves Peter Costello. Oh. He's just appointed Peter Costello's former chief of staff as his chief of staff. <gasps> wow. Yes. And, of course, his assistant, who's also going to look at the question of changing taxes and increasing the GST, is Kerry DeWire, who used to work for... Um, it was on the staff of uh, Costello before she went into Parliament and then took his seat. Goodness gracious. So we're going to have Costello and, e- economics and everybody, riot, and everybody knows, riot. everybody knows, and this is his revenge because we all know that it was Peter Costello that was supposed to be the Prime Minister and not that yes. dingbat Tony Abbott. But the big news, of course, which everybody knows, is that the Chief of Staff of Turnbull's government was Ab- um, Howard's um, Chief of Staff. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. And he got his nose out of joint because he was uh, canned at yeah. the Corruption Commission. That's a Synodinus, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, he's made him a, a some sort of secretary or minister, these, minister for something. And no, he, no, there's all he, these shadow... Yeah, you know, right. like how all, but the China, other bloke, but their cheaper staff's also come in. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you, yeah. Know, you know how in China they've got a, um, a, blank, uh, a, a dark uh, banking system? In Australia, we just have special ministers That's right. with special That's right. powers. That's right. That's right. And they and they do a good job too. They do a good job. Speaking of which, um, also you'll be pleased to know that um, the government was considering uh, relaxing the rules so that you know if workers go on strike for five minutes, so they walk off the job for five minutes and hold a meeting. They get dock four hours pay. It's part of the part of the act, and that's so uh, fair. Well, the government's been thinking of relaxing that, so they might actually only get docked for the actual time they're off work, which is a you know outrageous situation. Anyway, you'll be pleased. Such nice guys. Yes, and you'll be pleased to know the Australian Industry Group, which of course is the the aforementioned Innes, uh, <laughs> have come out against that. Yeah, they, they said that would encourage more strikes, and it's terrible. So. If the workers go out for five minutes, they've got to be docked four hours. Simple as that. Mm. So there you are. You're because he's, he's impartial. That, um, man, that man is impartial. We oh. know he's impartial. Well, they, that lot all are. They yeah, look at all both, of them. They look at both sides. Yeah, both sides. Jennifer Westercott from the Business Council, all that lot, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean they're two-faced? No. Well, they, that's right, Janus. <laughs> <laughs> the Januses of this world. The coin has got two sides. <laughs> Anyway, the other one, just before we go to Paddy Moriarty very shortly, I thought this was worth mentioning because we're getting, even before he's brought down any sort of report, we're having people charged over terrible things arising out of the Kanga mission by uh, oh, by the, yeah. the, the totally unbiased uh, Mr Justice uh, Dyson. Incredibly Dyson well Hayden. paid Dyson Hayden. I, I keep forgetting whether he's Dyson Hayden or Hayden Dyson, but it doesn't matter. Know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> no, whatever, whatever. And um, anyway, but... An, when it comes to other groups, I mean, obviously you have to have the evidence, and obviously he's got the evidence. Oh to, yes, uh, that's to right. Go. That's right. Well, everybody has assumed that they've yes. got evidence. But the Australian Securities and Investment Commission says it hasn't got it hasn't got enough um, enough evidence to charge banks over customer defaults. Um, we have not seen enough evidence of misconduct to justify legal action. It said. Um, so um, well, that's right. That's what's been yeah. uh, what they've discovered so the in this. Poor banks. Yeah, luckily, the banks can't be charged. Apparently. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. They haven't got enough evidence. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. A, if they've they had just, a, a royal commission, if, uh, Justice, I'm sure, I'm sure Justice Dyson Hayden or Hayden Dyson would also agree with that that there's not enough evidence to charge the banks because you, you know you've got to get the bloody unions who caused the problems in the first place. Unbelievable stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Kevin, we just live in we just live in the best country in the world. <laughs> well, the only well we do, and it's going to get better because you'll be pleased to know that um, Josh Frydenberg, the new Resources Minister, um, getting well, not speaking outside because this affects his, you know, but he says. Um, the Turnbull government will attempt to reform the industrial relations system, saying Sunday penalty rates need to be looked at. Um, it's costing business, and he says it can hit 175% um, in some areas. I mean, this is terrible. Bloody workers working on Sunday, for instance, you know, getting paid, for goodness sake. In the resources sector, it costs 50% more in Australia to have an energy product than if you were to have one in the US Gulf Coast. Well... That's the sort of thing that that poor bloke was talking about a minute ago. The they're bloke, poor. They're just so the bloke poor. From Soul Patch, yeah. You know, yeah, they they yeah, just won't yeah. be able to go and eat those expensive meals no. and travel <clears throat> around the world many <clears throat> times, and they just won't be able to. Well, that great supporter of the well, that lion of the labour movement, Martin Ferguson, last week he said that. Oh, you, Martin. He, he, he agreed unions were you know, unions out were, of control. Yeah, well, unions out of control, but not only like, unlike like environmentalists, they're using the bloody courts to attack these resource companies. And what's more, they're making demands, demands, unions making demands. You know, because there's been a downturn in their uh, in their uh, returns, uh, uh, what brings brings to mind is this thing about Blackwater, which is a mining town. They've uh, now made, it's terribly reasonable. They have to get rid of all their, their permanent workforce and take in contractors because, you know, it's good for business. Mm. And so everybody should be happy with that. Well, this is the mantra of the Turnbull government. Contracting out is a, is a very much a part of neoliberal economics. It's very important to the economy. We're and we all should all agree. Yeah. Oh, we should all agree. And the, just to finish up before we go to Paddy, um, just another headline or a, a situation. Um, they're, they're complaining now that the, the, the cost of bricklayers has gone up. It's, it's gone from, um, in 2012, it was 900 for 1,000 bricks in Melbourne. And in Sydney, it's now 1,500 for 1,000 and heading towards $2,000 for 1,000 bricks because there's a massive shortage of bricklayers. Now, this, of course, comes back not to the, not to the problem that uh, workers, well, it's, 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 um, it's market forces. So there you are, market forces at work, where workers actually can, um, can charge more because of market forces. Four, five, seven pieces. That's right. But, or, but more importantly, of course, the reason there's shortages is that because since privatisation of all sorts of government industries, which used to employ all the apprentices and did much, right. of, much of the training in they this country, training them. Uh, these people aren't doing it. And so suddenly there's massive shortages. We, we talk regularly on our housing day that the Housing Commission here years ago had its own construction authority and it had apprentices and it trained workers in the building industry. But this the, is why we um, have to flood the market with people from outside because we don't want to invest in our younger people. No, and when they, whenever they do talk about training workers, they talk about the government financing it, by the way, you know, mm, not employers. Because they're going to have funds... Uh, Despite the fact they're going to cut payroll tax, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. That's right. That, well, that but that means they have more money to invest and more jobs. See, they, you've got to realise that whenever they cut taxes or do that sort of thing, it doesn't go into their pockets. Eddie, I oh, hope no. you don't think that. No, no, no. It's reinvested, so there's more jobs and workers are better off. Isn't in that fact, in, in, you know, in fact, the whole country would run better if we got rid of the government and we gave it to the corporations. Oh. Well, we are. We're transurban. We're doing it. We're, we're, they're, they're 
giving us the go. But also, um, during the you know, big debate, big debates recently about penalty rates and uh, in the retailing industry, they did say, in fact, one one employer said, if we didn't have to pay so much in penalty rates at weekends, we could pay workers more through the week. So oh, that's what a like, load of crap! Pardon, oh, Annie. Please, let's go to Paddy Moriarty. Hello. Hello. Hello, Paddy, you're there. I, that's, that finished pretty quickly. Um, Paddy, we've got Annie McLaughlin with us this morning, by the way, who um, young Corey's, a chatterbox. Corey's uh, unfortunately not well. Um, oh. But anyway, that was Hi, nice. Amy. Really, <laughs> uh, now Professor Moriarty, as we keep pointing out, um, out at Monash. And Paddy, we did say today we'd have a yarn about the question of uh, climate change and its impact on cities. And you've written a report recently about that. Uh, and you tell me that You've, the report, in fact, looks at several scenarios. Can, can you go through some of those and give us an idea of what you see happening? Well, the paper, the paper in question was called The Future of Cities in a Warming World. So I had a look at cities um, under uh, climate change. Basically, there's uh, two ways that you can um, that cities can deal with climate change. Uh, one is adaptation, and the second, of course, is mitigation. Um, adaptation is... Is, is uh, such things as, um, well, let's say that there is an increase in flooding. Uh, you can do basic things like move the uh, power box up to, <laughs> from the basement upstairs and so on, right? Uh, ob- obvious things like yeah, that. Indeed, indeed. Just to run that, because a, a caller rang in when I said we were going to do this this week, uh, last week after the program, and, and said, could you talk about the possibility of, of seas rising, etc., and the impact on the coast a bit. And I pointed out to him that there are already some coastal councils that are, that are putting um, controls on and, and, and preventing development in certain areas. Um, could you talk about that a bit? Yes, it's one of the things I actually cover in this paper. Um, one of the pro- troubles is that if you put, let, let's say, uh, like in New York after Superstorms uh, uh, Sandy, there, there, there were a few proposals... Um, giant uh, seawalls proposed to block off some of their uh, bays and so on, right, at, at a cost of, you know, $28 billion or something. The trouble is that what this can do is make um, flooding worse elsewhere. So, in other words, the high-rent district of Manhattan and so on might be protected, but further along the coast, um, it, it makes it worse, right? So mm. you have to take a system view of all this. In other words, and it's the same, like um, improving drainage can often... Um, uh, help some areas at the at the expense of others. So you and of course this is determined by by, by income levels generally. So you have to be very aware of this. Uh, and of course, can I interrupt you again? Because in fact there was yeah. a classic example here a few years ago. The state government put levees in along the Meribyrnong Bank at Flemington Racecourse to stop flooding during the spring carnival, which yeah. simply forced the flooding further down the river. <laughs> Yeah, well, look, uh, our society is great at uh, non-optimal solutions, right? It's what we do. Uh, in other words, these are external costs, and in our market economy, we, we don't like uh, knowing about external costs, right? <laughs> uh, so, um, look, basically, there's uh, if you take say there are a billion slum dwellers in the world in the world cities, right? And these tend to live in low-lying areas on steep slopes and um, you, especially in Latin America, here after after heavy rains, you, you get these uh, mudslides and so on, and a lot of people killed and so on. So um, we can expect to see more extreme weather events, which will mean um, 
more earth movements and so on. And also, you have to remember that, say, coastal flooding can occur in two ways. One is by sea level rise, and the other is, is, is of course, from the hinterland by, by rivers draining to the sea. And um, most large cities in the world are either on the coast or on large rivers. And another thing is, of course, is that most large rivers these days are, in fact, dammed uh, for hydro or for um, flood control and so on. What this means is that there is that the silt that they would normally bring down um, then uh, lies behind the, the, the sediment lies behind the uh, the dam wall or in uh, check dams uh, built to to maintain the uh, the capacity of the main dam. So what this means is that there's less silt collected in the estuary, and so uh, what happens is that. Um, uh, tide and sea level uh, erosion is not re- replaced by this silt. So the coasts are sinking in many cities uh, even without climate change and the uh, sea level rise. So you have a double thing. One, you have this lack of silt. Also, of course, if you withdraw water or oil from coastal aqu- aquifers, that also leads to sinking and um, soil compaction. So you have these double effects. Say in the uh, in Bangkok, the... Um, the sinking of of the uh, delta there is uh, far more important than than the sea level rise at present. So you've got this double effect there in coastal cities. Mm. In um, fact, um, countries downstream on the Mekong River from China are complaining about the fact that China is putting dams in there and it's impacting on them incredibly. Yes, yes, especially fishing and so on. And mm. um, yeah, um, yeah, you can only, you can't only do one one thing. Uh, the other ways in which uh, cities will be impacted is through uh, changes in health. Uh, already, um, uh, heat waves, you remember the European heat wave in 2003 and there's one in Russia in 2010. And these um, these killed tens of thousands of people. The way they determine this, of course, is just to have a look at the, at the death records for the previous year at this interval and um, during the heat wave and, uh, and then... <laughs> Subtract the two. Uh, it's um, very often the elderly that die, uh, Kevin. <laughs> we, you and I ought to note this. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing they found, and you've got to consider the social circumstances under which people live. For instance, in America, they found out that a lot of people in in in, uh, in the hot weather weren't opening their windows and doors for uh, for a safety reason. So what the the fans that they were putting on their their apartments functioned as as sort of convection ovens, right? Mm. And yeah. um, so, so you've got to think uh, when you talk about adaptation and so on, and um, the effect of climate change on cities. You have to think of how the uh, the, uh, the groups that are positioned differently economically uh, uh, will respond or can respond. So the other thing, of course, about um, climate and cities is that even without climate change, you have what is called the urban heat island. What this is, it's partly because of all the um, the heat release from, you know, uh, every time you turn on the gas or the electricity or run a car or wherever else, it releases heat. It's also partly the fact that uh, evaporation is lower because so much of the area is surface is concreted over or roofed over. And it's partly to do with heat storage in large buildings and change in the air patterns. But the overall result is that uh, during the day in summer, uh, cities can be four degrees warmer than the surrounding countryside. So this adds to the um, to the uh, general effect of climate change. In other words, uh, if you if you have a heat wave and you've also got this, then this can lead to very high temperatures um, in, in uh, throughout the city. 
Yes, and you talked about um, levers adaptation. You talked about mitigation as well, Paddy. Um, I well, suppose well, mitigation, mitigation means trying to stop this happening at all. Yeah. Now, adaptation, the thing about adaptation is that the, the people who pay for the adaptation in general get the benefits, right? So mitigation, I mean, given that it is a global problem, um, if cities mitigate, it won't be there. It'll be elsewhere. In other words, they might build wind farms or... About 70% of the world's GDP is generated by cities. And, um, well, already 50-odd percent of people live there anyhow. So what this means is that um, uh, the people who pay for mitigation won't necessarily benefit. In other words, there is a freeloader problem, which, which of course, is what's happening at present and it's why there's no mitigation going on, right? In other words... Um, we we talk a lot about mitigation and so on, but if you study the um, scoreboard, uh, <laughs> you, you remember in, in football we we're going to hear a lot about this. But uh, if if one group of winning players want to irritate the other side, they point to the scoreboard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, no, it will, we, we actually have uh, we actually have a carbon dioxide score scoreboard. It's on the slopes of Mauna Loa in Hawaii, and it's where carbon dioxide one of the places or the main one where carbon dioxide levels in the world are measured. And this keeps on rising, right? So, you know, we talk about all these measures we're taking and so on, but the scoreboard keeps on rising. Carbon dioxide last year, uh, this year is greater than it was last year and so on and so on. It hasn't, only in 2009 did it slow down because the world economy slowed down. So um, mitigation then is is going to be a problem uh, because... (laughs) As I say, the the people who pay for it and the people who benefit won't necessarily be the same people. There are some cases where you can get local benefits. For instance, if you can, um, if by some mitigation measure you stop local air pollution, then that's a benefit to locals as well. But uh, in general, it's um, mitigation. Well, as I say, it hasn't worked yet. Um, and it's strictly related to economics. I mean, the economic situation is that a very small minority of people control the wealth. Uh, the vast majority don't, and, uh, and, uh, and many of those are, are real victims of it. And it's almost the same thing, isn't it? The same, the same group who control the wealth uh, control whether we mitigate or not, and they, it's not in their interest. No, it's not in their interest, and, and that's one of the problems. Uh, the thing is with climate change is that... Um, the response is uh, delayed. In other words, we're actually carbon dioxide levels are the highest they've been for um, many thousands of years, but the response is delayed. So, in other words, um, the response so far has been modest, and therefore this enables climate deniers and especially <laughs> fossil fuel industries and in- industry in general to say it isn't a real problem. Mm. And and this is it. By the time by the time uh, everyone realises we have a problem, it may be too late. And, and yeah. Uh, as I say, it's this uh, delayed climate response is a real problem for us. It's been reported in the past week or so on that point that Exxon, for instance, decades ago had a report and knew that climate change was a reality and was going to create massive problems, but have gone on most of the time since until you can no longer deny it that uh, you're producing experts to say it's not happening. Yeah, well, I, I think um, BP, uh, you know... Um, rebadged themselves as beyond petroleum and started putting green flour on there or something on on their logo. Mm. uh, But the point is, the hard fact is that their money still comes from oil, right? And this has raised the problem. You see, so much of the world's, um, say, uh, what do you call it, Um, life insurance funds and so on are tied up in, in fossil fuels. In other words, uh, they're banking on, on the fact that the world's, especially the world's oil reserves, will be used. 
And yet um, climate scientists are saying, no, we, we can't use our reserves of oil and gas and, and coal. In other words, we're going to have to leave a lot of it in the ground, in which case it'll be worthless. And so this will lead to rather profound economic changes as well, um, uh, because all this uh, wealth will, will then vanish. Indeed, you get some quite strange um, contradictions. There was a report in the past uh, week or so, um, Australia's largest businesses of single day are expecting Australia to take a serious approach to emission reduction at this Paris conference coming up. And a number of big companies, including AGL and lots of them, are saying they recognise there's a problem and they want the government to do something about it. Uh, and yet in the same week, an article came out in which it said that AGL was um, was one of the major polluters and uh, and was doing bugger all about it. In fact, and uh, their chief executive vowed to phase out its coal-fired power stations by 2050. And pe- you know, some, some some people suggest that mightn't be quite fast enough. And yet they you know, they they're one of the uh, one of the companies coming out saying let's do something about it. So there are all sorts of contradictions floating around, Patrick. Now, now remember, remember Saint Augustine's um, comment. I probably don't, but go on, try me. Yeah, yeah, uh, God make me pure later or something. (laughs) That's right, oh, that one, Uh, yes, yes, yes. But not not now or something, yeah. Yeah, the thing is that there's, uh, in other words, what what, what their strategy is to try to burn this stuff as fast as possible because they realise that time is running out for them and that that they won't be able able to, to, uh, to sell it later. So what they're trying to do is do it now. Indeed, Warwick McKibben, who, who like Warwick McKibben, who's like you as a professor, Patrick, he um, he did a report for the government on on their own report, so to speak, and he says Australia, even though people have been criticising the target we have set for Paris, uh, in fact, we on a per capita on a on a per capita basis, and particularly in terms of our, our economy, we're uh, we're right up there. His modelling says that because Australia is so dependent on carbon intensive fossil fuels, it's more modest pledge will reduce gross domestic product in 2030 by 0.2 to 0.3%, which is more than other developed countries and the same as China. So he's really saying, yet again, we really can't afford to do any more. Yeah, there's several points here. One is, um, uh, in fact, uh, some Indian um, economists and scientists have pointed this out, that uh, you can talk in terms of average per, per country, right? But the point is that there are very high emitters in China and India and so on individuals and so on um and there are low emitters in um in australia me for instance right mm. and so what what this means is that uh, people in middle classes in india and china can hide behind the national average right and uh, we tend to get the blame the second point is that um you have to when you speak about australia's emissions uh you know, do you include just the emissions here or do you include the emissions from our imports and exports, the embodied emissions? Um, for instance, and this is very relevant to um, America and um, Europe, where uh, because of, of a de-industrialisation, emissions have actually fallen in Europe because they're exporting, um, well, you know, BBC shows and um, importing machinery from China. So China's... Uh, emissions are high because they're the workshop for the world. So you really have to, what you'd really need to do is credit um, the imports from China as part of our emissions Mm. and then uh, at the same time let us off the um, emissions from our exports. So it's, uh, this this isn't being done at present. There's been some attempt to do it by some groups, but basically 
that's a, a modification we need to make to to um, to ascribe emissions to a given um, country. Do you think that this is a, a basic uh, problem that uh, uh, corporations and governments have that uh, fundamentally understanding that the world is a sphere and that we affect each other? A finite sphere, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, and it's not only governments and corporations. So the way I view it is that we have two groups, and this relates to the paper I've just sent off recently. Um, we have the group of climate deniers. The next group we have are those who admit, and this includes, I think, a lot of the Green Party and so on, and people like Al Gore. Then we have people who who agree about the about the problem and agree we face a serious problem, but at the same time are looking to some miracle solution. Uh, in other words, so that we won't have to change uh, the way we live, and that's not 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 on. In other words, um, you know, mitigation, um, renewable energy will solve it. It's just the same as changing from uh, from a shell to Caltex. You know, it's not it's it's no big deal. But in fact, we are going to have to move to renewable energy, but it's going to totally change. Um, the way energy is generated and distributed and used and so on, and it, we're going to have to use a lot less energy. So in other words, uh, what they have to realise as well is that we need lifestyle changes. We, yes, we do have an environmental problem. No, there are no miracle solutions. We're going to have to have lifestyle changes and rethink the way we live, and we're going to have to uh, focus on satisfying human needs rather than just um, generating GDP or whatever else. Mm. So it's a philosophical change of understanding. Sustainability requires a philosophical change from capitalist approach of continuous growth. Yeah, it's not only... I mean, even the, uh, even the state socialist countries adopted um, uh, economic growth. Um, so it's... Yes, uh, I mean, you could... Some people could argue that capitalism may have been progressive at a certain stage, but it cannot... Uh, the world is going to end mm. if we well, don't... Well, in fact, Karl Marx said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the world... Yeah, but the, but the thing is, um, uh, we, we cannot let uh, capitalism continue, it's, um, it'll, it'll wreck the earth, right? Um, because of this need to continually grow, uh, it's, it's just no longer compatible with a finite earth. It, 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 uh, one set of researchers talked about a full earth and an empty earth, which is a very good way of looking at it. Even in 1950 with, you know, I don't know, two or three billion people, you could talk about an empty earth. Now in 2015 with 7.3 billion um, it's full, and solutions that might have worked in 1950 when there was a, a little bit of spare capacity, as it were, no longer work. In other words, according to the ecological footprint people, we're now using something like 1.3 Earth, and as you know, we only have one, right? That won't be news to you. <laughs> <laughs> so in other, in other words, we're an overshoot, and that can't continue either. I, I just would, a bit, just to jump in, because I'm a bit of a, a guts for the mic, uh, is uh, my experience of living in, in the bush. Mm. I, uh, this is a practical ex- illumination for me, was that we used to live in the bush and we had to generate our own power. We had to find our own water. We had to do everything. And what we did was actually used uh, different technologies, uh, fused them together. So we'd have a tilly lamp, for example, or we'd have yep, a, so slow, yeah, and a, a slow combustion stove uh, but also have a ga- little gas bottle, you know, these sorts of things and have the generator for a couple of hours so we could have the computer. But we did like to go no, down to... We never had that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, but we, we were, we were <laughs> fantasising about fusing the entire uh, uh, 
uh, you know, technological uh, Penelope that we could have. But I did like going down to all Boston, standing beside a flick switch just so that I could see the light yeah. going on and off. <laughs> well, you've raised actually a very important point. Oh, by the way, we used to have a um, charcoal fired uh, clothes iron, right? I bet you didn't have one of those. No, we didn't. <laughs> but we did, people did have kerosene fridges, which was interesting. Yeah, we we had didn't. A kerosene fridge. We had a kerosene fridge. But the point is that you made a very lamps. important... You've made a very important point, point, though. As soon as you have reticulated energy, whether it's gas or electricity, you tend to use more of it than when you've either got a... Well, I spent my childhood cutting down firewood and getting twice warm from from it. And um, But as soon as you... When you have to get things in lots, you know, get a gas bottle or um, a, a gallon of kerosene for utility lamp and so on, you tend to use a lot less or use your generator for a couple of hours. That's right. You, you, you actually have a different association with your yeah. energy use. Yeah, but as soon as that's reticulated, yeah, it's um, the end. <laughs> and getting back to that point you raised about uh, you know exports imports, uh, yep. we keep raising on this program, but surely Australia's massive exports of coal to Asia and particularly China those ex- those exports you talked about those imports coming back from China they're often made using Australian coal. Yeah, um, that's, a good that's point, that yeah. should come under. Surely we should be including that that coal as part of our our footprint. Well, we don't we we don't have to in, include both, right? I mean, all right, you might say we shouldn't export it, but uh, it's still being used elsewhere. Um, look, even even just domestic energy, um, like use in the household, Australia is a world leader in energy use, right? Uh, there's no doubt about that. In and and in transport energy, they're the two sorts of energy that that a household controls, right? Private transport and um, and um, you know, domestic energy and um, uh, gas and electricity. So uh, we are still, yeah, we are still high emitters and we need to cut back regardless of mm. imports and exports. Yeah. And on that other point you made about um, about growth and uh, having to control it to some degree, um, interesting, since the federal government has now appointed a minister for cities, um, don't know what he's going to say, isn't it? What he's going to do? Um, but, Development. But yeah, that's right. I, I think we. No. I don't think it's going to be positive. But uh, Macquarie, Macquarie, Nicholas Moore, who's just been retiring, re- retiring recently as head of Macquarie, which is one of the big infrastructure companies, of course, and one of the biggest, you know, biggest capitalists in Australia. Um, he says cities are really important for us. So this looks promising, Paddy. The whole story of cities and how they work and the productivity dividend they produce is a really important one. Where you have that right people people connected working in the right culture and the right environment good things follow from it the right environment he might we might have a challenge over this he cites as an example australia's rates of population growth and urbanization doubling the populations of sydney melbourne perth and brisbane over the next 40 years and he goes on to say therefore we have to have the right infrastructure to benefit which means macquarie will build it of course and invest in it um but that seems to be the reverse of where you're going Yes, well, well, several points here. One is that um, there are, in, in, in um, smaller cities, there are economies of scale. Um, but as soon as you get past a certain size, for instance, we're now talking about building, you know, um, public transport tunnels and um, uh, a lot of overpasses on um, on my line. They want to replace about six of the things with over, uh, mm. the level crossing. Which is the Danny non-line to let people know, is it not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, all this means is that... It, 
it then becomes the costs become non-linear per person because it becomes increasingly more and more difficult to to accommodate on the existing infrastructure. Um, sure, developers have to pay for the local roads, but of course people don't only use the local roads, they use the, the, the freeways and the arterial roads and load them up, which means, of course, that, um, that they no longer can... Um, uh, can accommodate this increased traffic and the same with um, you know with our water supply and our electricity supply and so on. The second point is I'd like to just discuss a, a brief history of cities and so on. Um, if you have a look at cities, uh, places like Rome, Athens, um, Be Beijing, uh, Alexandria, you find that these were very small, then they rose, um, especially with empire, and they fell again, for instance, and then they rose again. For instance, Athens was 4,000 when it was selected as the um, as the capital of the of the new Greece, uh, and it's now over four four million. Rome got down to a few thousand after the collapse of the Roman Empire. And what I'm saying is, I think we may see a, a, a decline again. At present. Half the world's population live in cities. In the 30s, it was, it was something like, I don't know, 30% or so. Um, and the UN expected to keep on rising linearly. In other words, the percentage of people in cities expect to keep on rising linearly. And some are talking about 100% by the, you know, the end of this century and so on. I think it's going to peak. The percentage is going to peak in another decade or so. And for two reasons. One is I mentioned the there will be limits to adaptation in cities, um, and uh, from, well, from health effects, from um, extreme weather events. And you've got to remember that cities, because of their huge concentration of people and expensive infrastructure, are very vulnerable compared with rural areas. And um, so I, I think there'll be limits to adaptation. And I think um, that efforts, if we are going to have serious about mitigation, it means, as I say, that lifestyle is going to have to change. And one of the groups that I see affected, and this is very relevant to um, places like Melbourne, is that what they call the FIRE group, that is finance, insurance, real estate, are going to have to de decrease. I, I might also add that we may have to get something else, do something else in our lives apart from shop. And uh, I think about 22% of Melbourne's population are employed in retail sales, over selling things to each other. So, in other words, I, I think um, I think that the uh, that the impetus for city growth won't be there in another couple of decades. And at the same time, I think we may see a modest flowback to rural areas because um, uh, fossil fuel intensive agriculture may be a, a problem as well. Indeed. Well, you know, a lot of the areas that are now the outer suburbs of Melbourne, as it keeps expanding, were once the market gardens, etc., that fed the city. Uh, yeah, now, yeah. now that, that has an impact in terms of food miles, etc., which is further impact in terms of therefore using more petrol and diesel. Um, but secondly, as they expand, they're also eating up what's left of the native flora and fauna in those areas, and that's being destroyed and lost at a great rate. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, there's a big move now to urban agriculture and so on <laughs> mm. uh, uh, throughout the world. And in fact, there are journals now on urban agriculture. It turns out, like I was in Dar es Salaam for six years, and that's now four and a half million, um, you know, the size of Melbourne. Um, I think it was about a million when we were there, when I was there. And uh, but but of those four and a half million, I think about eighty percent are involved in some sort of agriculture, even though they're regarded as urban urban dwellers, right? They're, mm. they're still doing something in uh, in agriculture. So uh, it's actually the, the definition of 
who's urban and who's not is pretty elastic. In fact, if you take a city like uh, Jakarta, official estimates, some say it's you know, 23 million, others say it's 8 million. So you can see there's a fair bit of variation there. Depends where you stop the boundary. You know? in, a, in a funny kind of a way, it's also about uh, the types of um, skills and uh, survival techniques that people have used over many uh generations uh, so to lose your ability to grow things uh, would be a problem it just reminded me of the business about uh, the increase in capital in uh, Chinese families uh, the government has tried to uh, get uh, uh, households to uh, invest their savings but in actual fact very few of them actually have uh, which is a long-held uh, a survival technique uh, where they yeah. don't commit all their capital uh, in such a frivolous manner. Well, well given the level of, of corruption in China, I don't blame them, actually. <laughs> but, but no, you raise a very good point, and that is uh, about um, survival skills and so on. There's, there's, when we talk about mitigation and so on, we tend to forget that if we use, say, um, for... Uh, produce, say, um, I don't know, 16 tonnes of carbon dioxide. Is that, I'm trying to think how many it is per, uh, yeah, per year and some other country produces per capita and the other, some other, other country produces too, then that's uh, an, uh, an unheralded um, mitigation that they're doing. In other words, they're li- they have low-carbon lifestyles already. Now, some of this is... A lot, a lot of this is just... Um, forced on them but some of them we, we can learn from their creative from from the more creative aspects of their low carbon lifestyles just the same as we can learn from as you as you were discussing earlier from the creative aspects of our earlier low low carbon lifestyles in a, in in australia right we need to look to the past to see what what worked we have to get away from this present um, mind mindset and we need to look elsewhere and to our past I always wondered uh, why uh, Aboriginal or Indigenous Australians weren't understood as being the the pin-ups of sustainability. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, see, the thing is, one of the problems is that it was a fairly low-density population. The problem is that we're 7.3 million. As I say, we now have a full society, not an empty world, right? We have a full world, and we're... Probably as hunter-gatherers, we could probably only support the world, probably only support a couple of hundred million, right? So we have to look to the future as well. In other words, how are we going to satisfy the real human needs of, which could get to nine or ten billion people, and and keep the planet going? And that's the task we have to set ourselves. And uh, I see a somewhat reduced role for cities in that future. Mm. Which brings us, I guess, to the point where we started out, your paper. What, what do you conclude has to happen to, uh, to make cities or make the world sustainable with, with the sort of cities we've got? Um, well, they're going to have to be smaller. They're going to have to be, uh, as I say, I think there's going to have to be things like more uh, own, own provision, in other words, of um, water, even um, some energy. Uh, and also uh, food, especially uh, vegetables and and fruit. In other words, I think um, flower gardens going to have to be replaced by, by more practical <laughs> sort of things. These were very common in 19th century, um, mm. you know, vegetable gardens and so on. Uh, I don't know. It's it's um, it's 
very hard to make blueprints uh, for the future, considering the huge changes that we'll have to make. Uh, It'll have to be a more localised world. In other words, we're going to have to develop a sense of place as well. In other words, at present, suburbs are so bad that the first thing you want to do is actually get out of them, right, and get someplace else, mainly in other suburbs. It's exactly the same. In other words, if we could develop a sense of place so that people felt that they belonged in a suburb, that it was different from the next one and so on, um, then we wouldn't have to be constantly trying to be, be someplace else. Uh, and I think that localisation would extend to some extent, as I say, to uh, provision of um, not necessarily household, but at least uh, in the area of uh, food, water and um, mm. and even, even jobs and so on. So... This again has some traces of, uh, well, has, has some echoes from the past, but I think it's also going to have to be, um, has, have some futuristic examples as, uh, aspects as well, given, as I say, that we're now in a full world and we can't all um, um, just go back to the bush, as it were. Yeah, well, we have to wind up here, Paddy, but just to cheer you up no end, I thought I'd mention to finish up with the aforementioned Warren McCubbin, who's the uh, McKibben, who read that report that said we really can't afford to do much more than we're doing about this whole thing. Um, you'll be pleased to know that Hunt, the minister, is about to get rid of the, the existing members of the Climate Change Committee, whatever they're called, the Renewable Energy Lot, and point McCubbin, McKibben and others in their place with McKibben as chairman. So oh, my he's, God. He's a be- <laughs> so uh, that's a nice cheery note to end the show on, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well, yes, another one. Who's going to win tomorrow um, on, on, on a Saturday, Kevin? Neither, neither of them tomorrow. Paddy, but uh, no, I, uh, no. Saturday, no. I think it's a, I think it's absolutely even money. But it depends how West Coast kick off. I think if they come out nervously and Hawthorne's used to the big stage, uh, they might get jumped early, and that'll be it. But if they can I'll, hang in I'll early, my tip. Yep, yeah. here's my tip. Yeah. Have a look at the, at the scoreboard. Whoever finishes with the that's most right. points on that's the board, right. I think they'll, they'll win. <laughs> the yep. climate change scoreboard, the <laughs> and, it, and it's going to be sunny. <laughs> There'll be a lot of carbon wasted, but not wasted, buddy, but not, not on this, but not with football. It's not wasted, but a lot of carbon uh, used with people watching it on telly anyway. Yep, okay. All right, thanks, Paddy. Thanks for your time. Right. Okay, right. Um, Paddy Moriarty there, who's, um, as I said, professor of something or other. He's engineering. He's officially out at Monash. And, uh, and an all-round uh, good bloke. Interesting, Very interesting discussion, guy. yeah, yeah. yeah. I okay. want to end up this program with a song called A Gaze Blank and Pitiless. Okay, Annie, and look, and thanks for filling by in, by the way. Um, makes waves. Sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry, no, it's just it's a fantastic uh, title. I'm just getting my papers together so people can hear. Um, yes, thanks for filling in. And next week, tell people, Annie, thank yourself for doing the job and tell oh. people next <laughs> next week is Transport with John McPherson. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org. Dot org dot au.